This is a Sydney EO production. Welcome to episode five of the Sydney EO Business Podcast. I'm Brendan Tarazzi, the host of the show, and today I'm joined with Chris Gray. Hi there. Good doing? morning, Chris. How are you going? Very good, thanks. Uh, so tell me a little bit about your involvement with EO. How long have you been a member for? Sure. So I joined in about 2011. Um, I've been on the board for roughly about four years. I've had about three years in integration, so I meet all the new members coming in. And I had a year in uh, Strategic Alliance as well. So I've been pretty involved and also on an Asia Bridge uh, board as well. Okay. Yeah, I remember before I was an EO member, you had quite a reputation. I had a mate who was in EO and he was saying, oh, I've got this guy in my forum, Chris, and all he seems to do is drive around in his Lambo and and uh, have a good time. So your reputation has preceded you. Yeah, I know. I think I've had that reputation for about 10 <laughs> years or so that uh, I'm out doing stuff. But uh, a lot of it's actually technically marketing. No one believes me, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's all marketing related. But uh, I do enjoy having fun. So you you have a reputation for living a bit of a lifestyle. Tell me a little bit about what you do. I mean, I've heard you obviously through EO, but also you've been on other podcasts where you know, you talk about frequent flyer points and tell me a little bit about the day in a life of Chris Gray. Sure. So look, I've always been a contrarian and so I'm always doing the opposite to what most other people do. And effectively what I did is I worked twice as hard in my 20s so I could have my 30s and onwards of, of having some fun. And so my skill base is actually just mathematics. So I'm an accountant by trade, but I'm not a great accountant. I think I failed tax three times. But I just convert every decision into an, uh, uh, an equation, and then I solve that equation, and that equation gets me to do the opposite to everyone else. Okay. So to give you a few examples, so when I was at um, uh, back in the UK, like 21, 22, I wanted to buy a house. I only had £10,000. Normally you could earn uh, or borrow three times your money, so thirty grand. And that would get me a really crappy studio unit in the worst part of town, which obviously I didn't want to live in. So I fell in love with a three-bedroom house. And effectively what it was, that would be eight times my income. And so what I worked out, though, was with a three-bedroom house, I could rent two rooms out and live for free. So I effectively pitched my dad to say, look, Dad, I'm not after any money, but is there any chance you can guarantee my mortgage because the bank won't give it to me? And I ended up buying a 100 grand property for 80,000. So I made two years salary overnight and bought a three bedroom house and lived for free. And then what I worked out two years later was I could actually use the equity to, to buy a Porsche. So I couldn't afford a Porsche on a three year lease, but I could afford it on the mortgage. So I had a free house, a free Porsche. And if I sold the house, I could pay off the house and the Porsche and still be in, in credit. So I just thought this is an easier way of making money than going out to work in the in the morning. And so what year was this when you started along this trajectory? So that was back in, I think, 91, 92. There was no books. There was no TV shows. There was no magazines. This was all self-taught. And I started buying investment properties and there weren't even invest like no one, no one had an investment property. And so, because I thought if I've, if I've made this 20 grand overnight on one property, why don't I do it again and keep repeating like the McDonald's thing? Um, but we had to go to BNP, Bank Nationale de Paris, because all the English banks wouldn't, uh, wouldn't fund investments. So it was all kind of groundbreaking stuff in those days, whereas these days, like everyone's heard of it, but still not many people do it. 
And so those in, those investment properties were back in the UK. Yeah. Do you still own those? Or yes, yeah, so I've still got those. So I bought two at eighty thousand. Now they're worth between five and six hundred. So they've doubled and doubled and doubled again, effectively. And then I moved to Australia at twenty seven, and and rather than sell, I just carried on repeating and bought more and more. So I then ended up at Deloitte's at um, 31. I was earning £80,000, or sorry, $80,000, which was about 60 grand after tax. But at the same time, in the boom of early 2000s, I was earning 600 grand from property. Wow. And I couldn't spend that kind of cash in those days. Um, and I went to one of the partners to try and salary sacrifice a Ferrari. <laughs> and they basically worked out, because it was like a 500 grand car, but I was buying it for 250 because it's second hand. But you got taxed FBT on the five hundred grand, so the partner couldn't work out how I could afford a Ferrari when all the partners couldn't, and he didn't know my name because I was so junior in the office. Um, and they worked out that the FBT was more than my wages, so they, they knew I was doing something different. <laughs> and, and that's been my logic throughout my life. I just do different things. And then, so post Deloitte's, what happened then? You yeah, so I basically gave up work at thirty one, and um, when took you life when you say. Easy gave up work you gave up working for other people no i actually just gave up work oh okay yeah, so there i didn't do anything for for quite a while okay and so i need i did i needed stuff to do during the day and so a mate of mine got me into doing um uh extras work so i said to them look i don't want to be on on camera i don't want to say anything i'm not an actor but i just want to hang out on film sets and see how you make movies and adverts and they pay you 20 bucks an hour, which paid the petrol in the Ferrari to get there. And <laughs> I was a bit different to some of the other extras. But I then started just talking to the extras because you've got all day and you don't really do a lot. And so I started giving people advice on property. And then one of them gave me a lead that they were saying um, a Channel 9 was after a property expert. And because I didn't represent any of the chains like McGraw or Hookers, then all the chains wanted me on there because I didn't represent anyone else and I had no vested interest. So I, I became known as more the independent person on property because I didn't sell mortgages or property or anything. People trusted what I said because I was just telling my story. Yep. And then years and years later, it led to me teaching people, so doing mentoring and coaching. And then I had some wealthy CEO clients, and they said, look, I don't want to deal with the agents. Whatever you'd buy for yourself, I'd rather you buy one for me. So rather than pay two or three grand to train them, they'd rather pay me 10 or 20 grand and do it all for them. Okay. And that's where my whole business started in a way. It was, it was demand-driven. And so that's your empire? Yep. So, I mean, now we buy maybe 50 or 100 properties a year. We educate a lot of people for free. So we do lots of TV and seminars for, for virtually nothing. Um, we then got a mentoring program. So we'll mentor people over a year if they, if they want to learn for themselves. But the majority of people, especially the EO types, is they just know it's worth paying a dollar to make two. Yeah, that and makes that's the philosophy. And so, do you have a sweet spot of property that you know you focus in on? I know you you do a lot in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Yeah. So typically, our mentality is we're investing for thirty or forty years. We're not trying to pick the peaks and the troughs. We avoid the CBD because there's no limit of supply, so you can keep getting all these Meriton towers. And most Australians don't want to live in the CBD. So typically, we're investing roughly three to to ten or fifteen k's from the city, like Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane. And buying two bedroom units in Sydney because that's what the average price gets you for that money. And so, two bedroom Bondi has never gone down, like in a small block with parking 500 metres to the beach. So, it's almost recession proof. And in the good times, it ticks up. So, we're not trying to double our money overnight. A lot of people think I'm out there and I'm high debt and, and high risk, but I'm actually pretty conservative. And I've just learnt 
um, a lot of my investing strategy from doing all these sky interviews with all the banks and the valuers to say, what does the bank like? What do they dislike? And they hate main roads. They hate commercial. They hate kind of retail spaces around it. They like small blocks, no lifts, gyms, pools, uh, conservative strata fees. And they like stuff that's been there for 50 years versus the brand new stuff that the builder's going to do a runner and it's probably going to fall down. So the strategy is the average person is always going to have to live somewhere and they're going to want to live in a desirable suburb, is that? Yeah, and so rather than go for, say, the average Australian, we're going for the average local in a in a kind of good area. So we're not going point pipe of 5 or 10 million, even if they've got that budget. So we're going roughly in Sydney, say, 750 to 1.5 million because there's plenty of people. So there's no more property in Bondi, say. And there's stacks of young, wealthy people that earn good money in the city that they want to spend the money on, on rent because they want to go down the beach. Yeah. And they've got a high disposal income. They're not saving for their deposits. They've got wealthy parents anyway. And so there's almost their, like, interest rates don't make a difference to them. And we always joke that um, this is probably non-PC, that if they can't afford the rent, then they'll only take coke three nights a week rather than four <laughs> or five. There's affordability there. Yeah. So for the average Australian, a million dollars is a ridiculous amount of money. In Bondi, everyone's got it. And that's what we want to invest there. How do you think the – like there's a lot of talk at the moment that the banks are tightening up and it's getting harder to get money out of the banks. How does that affect everything? Sure. So that's affected things a lot from a business perspective because uh, most of our clients, they want to invest but they can't. They can't borrow the money. But in terms of the property prices, it's still pretty strong. So in Australia, where they talked about the bubble – so APRA was talking about the bubble for the last few years – is if you look for the high rises. So in, in Brisbane, you look at Fortitude Valley. Uh, in Sydney, you look at Green Square, Zetland, Alexandria. Down in Melbourne, you're looking at Docklands. That's where you've got tens of thousands of brand new apartments. The people that were buying them were either the foreigners who had to buy brand new because they can't buy secondhand, or the speculators that were trying to buy off the plan. And so they're the ones that are being affected the most by APRA and the Banking Commission. And those prices could be off 10, 20 or 30%. Wow. So that's the carnage. So if you were doing off the plan, like I've done a bit of off the plan over the, over the years, what's a good strategy? Or what do you think would be a good strategy? Small blocks or... Yeah, so generally I don't touch it. Yep. So that's Fair the enough. first... Yep. That's it. And it's not to say that you can't make money from that, but this is... Most people are armchair investors, and unless you're really, really good and you know it inside out, the strategy that I've got is an easy way to not take too much risk. Yeah. Whereas off the plan is risk. But if you are going to do it, small blocks, um, boutique areas, not around tens of thousands of, of apartments, because even though the market's changing, and this is all just part of the cycle, um, what the researchers say is supply and demand outweighs everything else in the economy. So even if there's no money in the market, the economy's doing really bad, there's massive unemployment... If you've got an area where there's no supply of property and there's plenty of demand, those basic economics prices rise or they're at least they're stable. So that's why we do the Coogees, the Bondis, the Kirribillis, the Manleys, the, um, I guess, the Balmains, the Leichhardt's, all of those kind of areas, there is no more property because they've got three-storey high limits now. Yep. And the rich people, they still want to live there and they're, st- they're always going to have jobs, those 25 to 35-year-olds. They've got mummy and daddy to help them if need be, and so there's demand. 
And so what's uh, like what's been your personal strategy? You, you've kept accumulating property or? Yeah, so it's purely accumulation. So the main thing is to get to your number. So I've got around, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 mil of property. I'm probably about 60% geared. And so what I did is I get to my number and then I just stop investing. And then effectively what happens is as the property market rises, your LVR or your gearing ratio then comes down. So I want to get it down to about 50%, which is seen as reasonably conservative. But I still want to gear or to borrow and have a facility up to 80%. And with that 20 or 30%, that's my buffer. So in these bad times, I'll actually draw that out from the bank. I'll then put it with lots of different other banks. So I get the 250 grand guarantee. So then it's very hard for the banks to pull the carpet from below me because I'm still paying my mortgage. I've then got a few million in cash and the banks can't um, pull my facilities away. Okay. Whereas if you had it all in your offset or your redraw, just like um, in your business, say if you've got a, uh, an overdraft facility, the bank can just ring you up one day and say, right, we're cancelling that. You've got 30 days to pay it off. Wow. So it's, it, it generally doesn't happen in Resi, mm. but it could happen. Yeah, I've heard some shockers in commercial where, you know, in the last, like the GFC, I, I've got a colleague and he had a, a commercial property and it basically the, overnight they just halved the value and said, hey, buddy, you've got um, 30 days to give us $1.5 million or we're going to take it and sell it from, from underneath you. And that's yeah. exactly what they did. And so that's why I don't invest in commercial or industrial or retail because the banks only give you 60 or 70% LVR because they see it as risk. But that's the thing is they'll revalue it overnight. And commercial property in the GFC still had exactly the same income streams coming in, but they just valued it differently, so they halved the value of the property. Whereas Resi, that doesn't generally happen because it's slow-moving stock. Even if people are scared, they're not going to sell it because they live in it. Mm. So, for example, the, one of the buildings I bought in uh, – when did I buy in Sydney? I bought in 99, so 20 years ago. It's a block of nine in Coogee, north-facing, kind of lots of sunlight overlooking the beach – and in that time, in 20 years, only one other apartment has sold. Oh, wow. And we bought it yep. Like for a, for a client. Yep. So when it's that tightly held, the property's always got to be worth the money. Yeah. And so most of the other people in there, they're old school. They probably wouldn't have refinanced, increased their debt. I paid 360 just before the Olympics when everyone said, oh, the market's going to crash. So every, every other person in the building must have only paid two or 300 and so when the properties are worth one, one and a quarter, one and a half million, where's the danger in that for all those other homeowners there? Yeah, that's true. So that's... the economy, unemployment, interest rates, that shouldn't affect those guys. None of them should be four sellers, which is why we're happy to pay, not top dollar, but we're happy to pay a fair price to get in the right building because we know decade after decade it's going to be good versus buying off the plan, getting something cheap now that's 20% off because no one wants it and no one can afford it. Yeah, so it's simple supply and demand, really. Yeah, but it's too simple for most clever people is what we say. (laughs) So we have all these people that are CEOs, they're doctors, lawyers, they think they're super clever. They're always trying to outwork it. They're always trying to put a spin. They're always trying to time the market. And it's stop being so clever, just buy so in other words, if you've got the money and you can get the finance and it's good stock, there's, it's always a good time to buy. 100%. So loads of people are saying now, why would I buy now? Because the market's going down, it's unlikely to move for the next few years, and you've got to pay the negative gearing, so 10 or 20 grand per unit, over the next few years. 
And everyone said that to me in the GFC, and I bought half my property portfolio in the GFC. But the difference is now is you can buy a property that ticks 10 out of 10 boxes. You can do it without fighting to pay a premium for it. Sure, it, it may not grow for a bit, but you lock it in now. And what I found in the GFC is those good properties were actually ticking up in value. But because the average market wasn't, it never hit the headlines. And the valuers would never value it up. But suddenly what happens is whether the market turns up in one, two or three years, what happens is it takes six or 12 months for most people to get on board for enough front page headlines to say, right, boom time, next cycle. Everyone literally rushes in the same weekend. They fight over the property. Only one person can buy it. And so for the next six, nine or 12 months, they're all fighting to get in the market and overnight the market moves 20%. And then you get a substandard seven out of 10 property that you've paid 20 or 30% more for. And so the smart money is buying be contrarian. Yeah, so I think what you're saying is that coming up now is actually a buyer's market. And in a buyer's market, you get the pick of the best stock. Yeah, 100%. So I've bought for 20 years. Um, or actually, you know, I'm older, 25 years. Time disappears. Uh, and I bought through good times and bad times, and I just buy. So my rule is, is when I've got the money, I buy. And it's as simple as that. And in hindsight, I would have bought all my properties exactly when I did. Yeah. I've got no problem with that at all. But it's very hard to be contrarian. And if people are in EO, they should understand this because this is why they're entrepreneurs. It's going against the grain when everyone else says you can't go and do something, and then you go off and do it. So with your portfolio, do you still use agents and that sort of thing to manage the day-to-day operations? So a lot of people think, oh, you should be so busy. So I've got uh, 13 or 14 properties. Uh, I've got wife, two kids at school. Um, I've got a business. Um, I've been doing Sky News for 10 years. I speak around the country. I travel overseas a week of uh, the month. So I do about 15 trips a year. Um, I write lots of articles and do all this stuff. So people say, oh, shit, you must be working 80 hours a week. And it's like I work a couple of hours a day. Yeah. And it's because I've got good at outsourcing. I've got good at realising my limitations and there's always someone better to go and do stuff. So everything in my world is outsourced. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And so a lot of the times I'm driving my cars around and it's got advertising down the side and I'm just going out having some fun doing stuff. And again, like all the boats and the choppers and all that kind of stuff on uh, on social media, and people say, "Hey, when do you, when do you work?" And people are always inquisitive, like, "How come you're not working? How come you've always got time to do this?" And I said, "Well, my portfolio, if it grows at five or ten percent a year, I should make say seven fifty to one and a half million a year, and that's where my real wealth is. My business is more is kind of serviceability for me to get the loans and it pays for all the toys and expenses and stuff like that but it effectively it runs itself because everyone's self-employed and we've got no office um and so i've got lots of time and this is how i do it so i'm trying to create this ultimate lifestyle and if clients want that then i'll say i can deliver it because i've done it for myself become a client and i'll show you the way yeah and so if i was working 80 hours a week they'll be saying well, I don't want to follow your path because you're working too hard. So I said to my wife, I've got to be having all this fun because otherwise the system doesn't work. Chris, I think you've already got the lifestyle. I'm not sure if you have to <laughs> work too much uh, further to, to um, make that, that bigger. But but look, as we all know in, in all our businesses, effectively, if you've got your own business, it's 24-7 anyway. So I am technically working. And yeah, but it's, it's fun and it sounds like you've really diversified your income stream so you're not reliant on any one income stream to 
to and that's what we're doing more of now so the whole idea is is create the wealth or the asset base then build up a plan b c and d to then secure what what you've got so i haven't got there yet if there is a place to get to still working on it and it's still 50 50 so look it like it could all come to an end you never know but the way i think about it is go hard play all the time while you're young and make the most of it but but again, is try not to take too much risk and try and have those band B, C and D. Yeah, well, I think that's the thing. No one really knows what's around the corner, so you may as well enjoy it now while you can. Yeah. Because who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah, because all the sceptics will say, oh, no, I'd rather not have it, and then you don't know what you've missed. But what I've found with a lot of my wealth and a lot of the stuff I've done is once you've ticked the box, you don't actually need it. Yeah. And so I've had the massive houses, but we used a third of it. I don't need two lounges and three dining rooms and whatever else. Like, we're in an apartment now, um, and I still rent my apartment. So I don't want to be a homeowner. It's called rent vesting now because I've had the big house, and I don't need it. And so we now we worked out that effectively we could rent somewhere three times more expensive than a house we could buy. So rather than have a $3 million home, you could live in a $10 million rental and not have all that fixed overhead. Again, I've had the Lamborghinis and, and the Porsches and the Ferraris and all those things. Once I've ticked it off, now I've got a 1912 Ford Model T, so 105 years old. It cost me 32 grand, and I absolutely love it. And it's getting more photos than the Lambo. It's unbelievable. Is uh, that branded, by the way? I don't think I've seen yeah, that yet. Yeah, no, I'll show you. That's, uh, every, <laughs> everything's branded. Yeah. So, so the Model Ma- T... Making it work for you, right? Exactly. So, so the Lambo, the, the tag is, uh, we'll get you there faster. Then the Model T is um, slow and steady wins the race. And then I've got a rally car that I've built that's actually a 85 stretch Cadillac. Not the normal kind of rally car that you'd expect, but it's got roll cages and racing seats. And that only cost, I think, uh, 22 grand. And um, that's invest for the long term. Cool. All the way down the side of it. I like it. Okay, Chris, we're going to wrap up now. Um, I've got just five questions to ask you. Um, first question is, how old are you? 47. 47. And um, what do you do these days to keep fit? Not a lot. Okay. <laughs> but you got the time. Come on, mate. <laughs> That's always an excuse not to go down the gym. So once in a while I do, but uh, I hate it. How many hours sleep are you getting each night? Uh, probably anywhere from kind of four to about six or seven. I'm in for the afternoon nap, so okay. I can get away with a few hours sleep as long as I nap in the afternoon once or twice and I'm cool. Yep, that makes sense. And then do you have any personal goals that you're looking to achieve in the next 12 months? I think my main thing is is really just securing my financial wealth. So I've spent a, a, a long time trying to create this wealth and this lifestyle, and now there's been massive changes in the property market and so I just need to try and secure that because it, it is uh, rough times out there. But again, there's potential opportunity as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then finally, what business achievement would you like to be most remembered for? See, I'm weird with the business side. So most people come into EO to build the biggest business, to have the most staff, the biggest turnover. And I come in and say, well, I only turn over a couple of mil. I've got no staff and I've got no office. And they say, oh, well, I'd love to have no staff. And so that's the thing is, is for a lot of people, it's a big ego thing, whereas I, I don't have that ego thing. I think my greatest achievement in business would be to be earning money without doing anything. 
Okay. I think that's what I'd be like to remember for. That makes sense. So if people want to find out a little bit more about Chris, where can they go? Sure. So if they just go to yourempire.com.au, um, probably the best thing they can get off there is uh, a copy of my book. It's called The Effortless Empire, so how to build a, a life like this. They can download it for free. If they can't read or haven't got the time to read, then they can download the audio as well and uh, listen in the car. But that's really my story and how they can build a lot of wealth and uh, lifestyle for themselves as well. That's great. Thanks very much, Chris. Anytime. Anytime. <laughs>